0: Hey, Sanctus Church, welcome to week two in this mini-series on spiritual conflict that we've called Deliverance. Again, if you are not a Christian, you're checking this out, this matters for you. If you're a brand new Christian, this matters for you. If you've been a Christian for a long time, this matters to you and matters to me. And whether you belong to Sanctus or not, maybe you're part of another church, welcome to this very important conversation on us trying to work out biblically what spiritual conflict is and what it's not. So so last week, if you were with us again, that's what we really did. We did the grand overview of what is spiritual conflict? Where is it happening? How can it affect me? But specifically today, I want to address the question, what happens or what can happen to a Christian once you switch sides? The question I'm always asked, have been asked now for two decades, is what happens to us after we start our walk with Jesus? Or more to the point, what role can the demonic have in my life after I've become a child of God? Now, this sermon is gonna get really close to home. And I always say when I'm preaching this or in a lecture format, this is where all the pitchforks come out and all the light bulbs go on. And this is when the Twitter accounts start going. This is the moment where a lot of things get clear and controversial. But I wanna say this like I did last week. God and angels and prophets and all sorts of other people always say that when God is about to reveal something new or clarify something, he always says, do not fear. Our journey today begins in a holy space, a place actually dedicated to God. It's actually a guaranteed place of encounter. It's found in Luke 13, 10. On the Sabbath day, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman who was there had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, she could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you're free from your infirmity. Okay. Let me bring this home. Number one, she's in synagogue, which we would call church today. But unlike our times where we choose our own adventure and go to this church or that church or no church at all and seek or sensitive, and would you like a latte as you're coming to meet Jesus? No, 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 no. If you're in the synagogue, you're known. You're in community. You're a member. So this woman is a member of the synagogue. She's in the community. She's a known commodity person. She's in relationship. She's also in a place where the true living God is being worshipped and she's sitting under God's Word. I want to remind you that the Old Testament is just as inspired and living active as the New Testament. So she's in a guaranteed place of encounter among God's people. And then we find out she has a medical condition. Now let's not forget who's writing this. Luke who's writing Luke and Acts is a medical doctor. He uses a medical description as he's hearing, uh, talking about this. Now, this woman, I'll put it in layperson's terms, has a reverse hunchback. She has a ball of bone at the base of her spine, which will not allow her to stand up straight. Now, it's a medically defined problem and Luke's a medical doctor, but the source of the medical issue is demonic. And she couldn't stand up for 18 years. Can you imagine how bad that was? Well, Jesus calls her forward, little Pentecostal style, in front of the church and heals her. And it says in verse 13, then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and she praised God. So Jesus calls her forward to the front, sets her free. The demonic leaves her. The medical condition's gone. And what happens? Oh my goodness, it's party time. Worship, freedom. I I guarantee she starts dancing. People are looking, jaw dropped, singing, crying out, praising God. Everyone's ha- Nope, not the pastor's. Not so happy. Everyone's worshiping, but those who represent God, not so pleased. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler said to the people, hey, 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 there's six days for work, so come and be healed on one of those days and not on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you untie uh, on the Sabbath your ox or donkey to, from the stall to get it water? Then should not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, but be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. Hello. Now, in other words, he's saying you love your animals more than this woman made in the image of God, and you're her pastor, right? Sorry, her God-given freedom does not sit well in your theological boxes, but your theological boxes are wrong. She's free. She's free, right? You're seeing this, free. Now, again, don't misunderstand this. Jesus broke the oral law, the laws that Pharisees set up, right? So you wouldn't break the real law. And he's like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I know what I'm doing. Now let's just stop and focus on one very important phrase. Should not this daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept for bound for 18 long years, daughter of Abraham, highlight that, circle that, underline it. This matters so much to this conversation. See, this phrase for Luke, doesn't just mean neighbor. It doesn't mean, oh, she's Jewish, even though both are true of her. It is a phrase for Luke of religious standing. It implies she is a godly woman. And here's the the very significant thing. This is the only time a woman is called a daughter of Abraham in the whole Bible. This is about being a child of God. This is more than Jewish heritage. It's a declaration of Jewish faith. She is in relationship with God. Here's how we would say it as Christians. She is... Saved. See, Luke only uses these phrases for salvation. Do you remember Zacchaeus? You want to sing the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Do you know the song? Okay. He's a tax collector, right? He's connected to the Romans. Anyway, when Zacchaeus has dinner with Jesus in Luke, this is amazing. And 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 repents of his sin. He is called, now today you are a son of Abraham. Like Jesus says. You're in. Later, Paul, in the book of Acts, post-cross, in Acts 13, 26, calls the church in Antioch of Piseidon sons of the family of Abraham. So catch this, for Luke, son of da- or daughter of Abraham is a salvation statement. So watch this, everyone. You got a Jewish woman in synagogue, church, under the living word of God, in right community, and she before God is godly and saved, and at the same time as a demonic being in her, causing her a medical massive condition. Whoa, hello. So this now brings up the next question. Well, what in the world does possession actually mean? I mean, in almost every single conversation I have about spiritual conflict, I hear this phrase immediately, the statement, Christians cannot be possessed. Well, you're right, and you're wrong. Okay, let me do this. What are these? These are my glasses. When I say these are my glasses, in English, you immediately know, without me saying it, I possess or own these glasses. So, as a Christian, you can never be owned by Satan and Jesus at the same time. Yes, of course, unless ownership is not what possessed means in Greek. See, in New Testament Greek, the Greeks had not one, not two, not three, not four, five words they used for owning things. They were so into owning stuff, they would have been very well at Yorkdale, that they had five different words they used to own things. Now, here's the wild thing. Anytime you see they had a demon or they were demon-possessed in the New Testament, those five words are never, ever used. It just means they were tormented, vexed, troubled, or had. So when you see demon-possessed, it does not mean ownership. You've gotta disentangle ownership from presence. So you can have internal influence of the demonic, but not be owned by the demonic. Yes. Now, of course, I know what some of you are saying. You're like, well, that's an amazing story, John, and it's true, but that's all pre-cross. See, after the cross, once Jesus died and rose from the dead, that changed everything. God and Satan can't share the same space. The devil can't touch me. I am free in Jesus. Well, yes and no. During the birth of the church, during a revival period, we see Christians that are demonized. I can't preach it all right now, but if you read in Acts chapter five, there's this story about Ananias and Sapphira, but specifically verse three, Peter says to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you receive from the land? Now, Satan fills Ananias to the point of influence. Ananias is a Christian, by the way, owned, saved, baptized in community, and yet the demonic have influence in him. See, hiddenness is actually providing the most dangerous moment for the demonic to walk in. Now, Peter confronts Ananias to the shock of everyone, and we see two spiritual gifts, right, at play. This is what we talk about all the time in our spiritual gift series and in Convergence. He has the spiritual gift of discernment and words of knowledge. Discernment is what is the source. Words of knowledge is information you have no access to that God gives you that brings humility or healing. So Satan is present, and Peter, because of the gift of discernment goes, Satan has filled your heart, presence, discernment. How did Satan fill your heart? You lied to the church and God about the amount of money you got, word of knowledge, access to information he had no access to that leads to humility. Now, there's more that needs to be thought about this. This is where we need to walk through upstairs theology and then downstairs theology. So let me start upstairs and walk downstairs. What did Jesus do on the cross in relationship to Satan? Well, Colossians 2.15, one of my favorite verses on this topic. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus took off, put off, stripped off. He strips their power, all that would lead us as humans to worship them or fear them, and he breaks them. But not only did he do that, it says that after the cross event or during the cross event, he triumphed over them. And this is a profound image. So I've shared this before, let me do it again. Paul uses it out of the Roman context. When a Caesar or a Roman general conquers another landing king. They would ride in triumph into Rome. So there would be the general or the king or the Caesar and then the triumphant army. And then the king that had lost or general would be in chains, would walk behind. And then his army, what's left of them, would walk behind. And as they walked through the streets, people would throw things at them, jeer at them and pelt them. In other words, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, Satan and the demonic had to walk behind Jesus in defeat. Amen everyone? Like, this is incredible. Their splendor, their dignity is broken in the ultimate sense. So yes to all of this. Keep with me. The book of Ephesians follows the same flow. I want to remind you that Ephesians is written to Christians. And this is insightful to this conversation. Now, my favorite chapter in Ephesians is chapter one. It's the best chapter about God-given identity. Let me take some time. Ephesians 1.4. In love, Chapter five, he predestined us to adoption, to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. God, because he's patient with us and kind towards us, (coughs) since God does not envy, is not boastful, is not sinfully proud, since he's never dishonest, since he's not self-seeking, since he's not easily angered, since he never keeps records of wrong, since God does not live evil, but he is truth, since he protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. Out of that amazing, consuming DNA love, he predestined you, us. He set us apart. He limited, he appointed, he determined ahead of time. He destined and foreordained and marked out beforehand. And that was all so we could be adopted. Think about adopted kids. They don't get access to that family by right, but by invitation and by calling. Someone has to go and actually adopt them in. And then they get the same rights and footing as a biological child. That's what God did with us. In Jesus, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Redemption means to be set free. Redemption is the word deliverance. Release. It comes from the idea of in a slave market, you buy someone back and set them free. We have been liberated from sin, death, and the demonic. They don't ultimately own us anymore. On the cross, Jesus broke that stuff. Verse 13, if you're a Christian, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal the promised holy spirit whom is who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are god's possession to the praise of his glory when you said yes to jesus you're baptized in the spirit the the spirit of jesus walks into you and tattoos your soul and he is the deposit he is the foretaste he is the pledge he's the initial down payment guaranteeing your resurrection until the day of redemption. You can't kick God out. Once he's in, he's staying. So watch this. When you became a Christian, you are upstairs, positionally, elected, called, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed until the day of redemption. And if that's not amazing enough, he keeps going. Ephesians 2.6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We are seated with Christ. And by the way, the heavenly realms is not heaven. The heavenly realms is where the battle is actually taking place. And the point is, since Jesus is over all the demonic, so we have that power because we are in Christ. We are seated. We need to appropriate our position and our authority in Christ. And when evil comes, when our hearts condemn us, when the world says that we're not what we are, we need to say, I am a saint, I am in Christ, and I overcome you with a power that is not my own. If that's not amazing enough, in Ephesians 3.10, it says this, His intent was that now, in this age, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms in accordance to his eternal purpose and accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, ready? This is amazing. God called the church, you, us, his manifold wisdom. Manifold is such a cool word. It's variegated. It was used to talk about cloth or flowers, it was used to talk about the endless variety of colors found in fashion or or, or in flowers in the world. It's intricate, it's beautiful, it's embroidered. This is actually the word used for Joseph's coat of many colors. Here's Paul's point. The church is beautifully diverse, beautifully multicultural, beautifully multiracial, multigenerational, multi-gifted, it's incredible. And all of this beauty is put on display in front of who? The devil, all of his hordes. For Paul, principality, power, ruler, or dominion is is titles for the demonic. So watch this. This is so good. The broken, most messed up, not effective, dysfunctional local church on earth is still God's billboard yelling at the kingdom of darkness. You lost, you lost, you lost, and you're never going to win again. So let me do this again. You are predestined, yes, and called, and adopted, and redeemed, and forgiven, and sealed, and seated in the, in the heavens, and you're a billboard of Satan's defeat. That is true of every single Christian. All of that is upstairs. That's all true, and this is our starting point for unity. By the way, unity never comes from us. It's an external thing. So then in chapter three and four, Paul says, now the unity is clear. Hey, husbands and wives. Hey, slaves and masters. Hey, leaders and churches. Hey, everyone. This is how you work out that identity between each other. And then right in the middle of that, he throws in one of the greatest threats to unity. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. We're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Hey, predestined, called, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed, seated in heaven, billboard of Satan, defeat people, you still can give the devil a foothold downstairs. Foothold is the word in Greek topos, T-O-P-O-S. I think it's used about 83 times in the New Testament. And it can mean locality, occasion, opportunity, parts, passenger, place, reef, region, regions, or room. 98% of the uses of topos is space inside. So Paul is saying, if you don't deal with your anger as a Christian, you will give the demonic influence, area, locality, occasion, opportunity, room, region, place, or space inside of you, my body, mind, or will, even though you're a Christian. Pitchfork or light bulb coming on yet? The image we've used here forever is of the house. It came from uh, a friend of mine named Roy Matheson. Imagine that you are a house and you're a Christian and God has bought the deed of the house and Jesus lives in the house. But because of anger or brawling or lust or whatever, there's a left bedroom window open in your life. And there are squatters now living in that bedroom. Those squatters don't own the house. They have no legal right to the house, but the left bedroom window has been left open. And so they're causing destruction in the house, but they don't own the house. See, possession doesn't mean ownership. It just means to have. And we can see this even more clearly. Now he uses anger, by the way, as the example. He also talks about bitterness, rage, and brawling, but the point is any habitual sin falls in this category. But he enforces why you're not lost in Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. So Paul affirms that a sinning believer is still the property of God. And he says that's true through the seal image. But he teaches very clearly that when we actually habitually get involved in sin, it's a door-opening event. The demonic can come in. The Spirit of God becomes grieved, but does not leave. So in other words, here's the implication. Many of us have Trojan horses in our lives, in our families, and in our church. So you're like, hold on, let me just work this out. You, you're saying I might have a demon in me who does, does not own me? Yes. How many of the demonic are crawling around in us in our connect groups, in our families, and our worship services because we played with fire and didn't think there would be supernatural consequences or they'd be so extreme? And by the way, some of you are like, this is not fair. No, no, it's not. This is a war, this this isn't fair. But just because you think it can't happen or it doesn't fit into your theological box or you don't even really believe in demons or you feel just fine, doesn't mean it has not happened or could not happen. And for some of you, it already has. We wonder why church unity is so hard. We wonder why churches never seem to have enough faith and power and holiness and prayer life and lasting change. Well, it's because the world, the flesh and the devil actually can affect us not just externally, but internally, even though we're positionally saved. Now I know some of you are like, no, 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 John, mm-mm. God and Satan cannot share space. Well, let me undo that for you. Why do you think Satan is more evil than sin and worldliness? He's not. We would not say that God cannot share space with sin or worldliness. I mean, the Holy Spirit in my life and your life, if you're a Christian, deals with worldliness and sin every single day. He's grieved, but he doesn't leave. So of course he can share space if the demonic are present and also let's just be blunt that's not what the scripture teaches to say that the demonic cannot share the same space with god is actually an unbiblical statement job chapter 1 satan literally is in the presence of god jesus and lucifer share space over a period of time during the temptations oh and if we're going to be truly theological god is omnipresent which of course leads us to realize that god is in the presence of the demonic all the time in this period some of you are like okay but what about 1 john 5:18? we know anyone who's been born of god does not continue to sin the one who's born born of god keeps them safe the evil one cannot harm them oh of course in the ultimate sense of course yes But remember what we've been learning in the book of Revelation. There's a difference between sealing, security, and safety. Oh, our sealing is guaranteed. Once you become a follower of Jesus, everything I just said out of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, it's true, can't be taken away. It is guaranteed. And your sealing leads to your physical resurrection. That sealing can't be touched. Security, yeah. Eternal security, Can't, can't walk out of God's hand. All is true, but not safety. If you open yourself up, you'll never be possessed by the evil one in the sense of ownership, but you can be demonized, you can have. And Ephesians 6 is very clear, not if, but when the day of evil comes, we have to stand so all of us will have the experience of oppression multiple times by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We will be oppressed to do wrong things. Oh, and, and persecution. 260 million Christians right now are living under direct physical threat persecution. Of course they can be harmed between this and that time, the first and second coming of Jesus. This is the ultimate thing. Remember, it says in the book of Revelation, Jesus even says to one church, one of you might actually die. So we need to make sure that our biblical worldview is biblical, not cultural and safe. Okay, what do we learn out of this? Number one, we as Christians need to think biblically about sin, world systems, and Satan, and how they can actually affect us. Because, affect us. Because we need to have a common starting point so we can theologically and personally and devotionally work this out well. See, some of you, this has been a light bulb moment for you. As I've been preaching, you're going, oh my goodness, I didn't think that could happen to me. But that now explains why in my Christian life, though I've been faithful and and, and there's like gasoline perpetually on the fire of my struggles that seems above and beyond normal. By the way, if you are just starting to panic and you're like, oh my goodness, I think John, that's me. I mean, that's my story. Okay, do not be afraid. You've lived with this for a while. It's Jesus who's talking to you and showing you this. Don't panic. He's gonna work this out. Some of you are like, man, I need help with this. Yep, over the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about the role you take, how you need to personally stand, and also where the local church, our church steps in. The ministry we have run here now for a long time that helps with this particular conversation is releasing prayer. But the big thing I wanna leave you with today is all of us need to understand we should not open doors. We need to be aware, not in a legalistic. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! The devil might. No, no. Just understand that we don't want door opening events. So we we need to be serious about our holiness. And if we have opened some doors, instead of panicking and freaking out, you're not out of God's love. You need to go before Jesus even now and say, Jesus, I did this and this and this, and I don't know if anything showed up, but honestly, would you have mercy and forgive me and close those doors? I'm just gonna pray a simple prayer um, that hopefully will help as we keep wrestling this uh, through together. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. May only the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God's majesty, be able to speak to the people. Not their own hearts, not the world, and definitely not the demonic. Lord, would you help us to understand? Some of us have to wrestle this out biblically, lead us in all truth, help us to understand this well and admit and submit to what the scriptures say, just to admit it's true. Others of us need to change our theology because of this and we need to be humble about it. Others of us are like, I don't know if anything's going on. Lord Jesus, as they ask, just tell them. And for others who are panicking or freaking out or like, oh my goodness, I need help, give them comfort and peace and begin to orchestrate the moment for their freedom. Thank you that despite the world, the flesh and the devil and even our own stuff, you still love us and all that you say about us is true through Jesus. We pray for freedom at Sanctus Church in Jesus' name, truth in Jesus' name across Sanctus Church, love in in, in across Sanctus Church in Jesus' name and your sovereign timing to help people as you see fit. Guard and protect us and lead us we ask in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen.